Ladies, thank you for the lovely music once again, the strong, strong, powerful words. Thank you for setting us up and helping, helping us prepare for our lesson. Good morning. Welcome to Abide 2015. If uh, you are returning, welcome back. It's good to have you back. If you are new, welcome to you. And I hope that you're uh, able to feel at home here and feel welcomed. I want to start this morning with a story about Ayelet Waldman. Ayelet Waldman was a relatively obscure writer and lawyer until she wrote an essay in 2005 for the New York Times in which she talked about how she was the only mom in her mother's group that was getting any. In the essay, she went on to talk about how she was in love with her husband, but she was not in love with her children. And then she went on to say this, and I quote, If a good mother is one who loves her child more than anyone else in the world, I am not a good mother. I am, in fact, a bad mother. I love my husband more than I love my children. Well, Ms. Waldman learned very quickly that you can't go around saying things like that in this country. She claims that people, she claims that her comments ignited a firestorm among the parenting community. She claims strangers walked up and threatened her physically. They warned her that they were going to report her to child services. It was, um, her statements and her article was so provocative that it caught the attention of Oprah, who invited her to come on the show, face a very hostile audience, and talk about and defend her views. Oprah called her brave in the end. The rest of America called her a bad mother. Now, if that was the country's example of a bad mother, then what is the country's example of a good mother? Who are the good mothers out there? Well, we need only look to today's parent magazine and find that them and their readers have agreed that it is actress Kristen Bell. She was voted 2014 Celebrity Mother of the Year. Now, how did she come to acquire her good parenting label? Well, she is said to have used Twitter to stop media outlets from publishing paparazzi photos of celebrity kids without permission of their parents. Mother of the Year. <laughs> Kate Middleton, she was Mother of the Year in 2013. And the winner before that in 2012 was Jennifer Garner. It is said that she was up against four very famous mothers, but the magazine says she won by a landslide because people were so impressed. They were impressed with her commitment to family. They were impressed with the way she um, had a successful career. They were impressed with her work with a charity, which has saved the children, and with her commitment to eating fresh food. Okay, and by the way, this is a pattern that I noticed anytime I saw women being celebrated for their motherhood. It was usually for the way they juggled parenting, a career, and extracurricular activities. And then you throw in the fresh eating thing, and you're just, <laughs> and you're taking home a trophy, okay? All right, now that's how the world is defining motherhood. That's how the world is defining good motherhood. But what about biblical motherhood? 
what would a truly redeemed woman mothering, what would her goals be like? What would her methods be like? What would biblical motherhood look like? Now, last year, or yes, last semester, we talked, we spent a whole semester talking about true womanhood. What if we are to zoom in and look specifically at, that, at the parenting, at the mothering aspect of our womanhood? What's that going to look like? Well, the course that we're going to be starting today is written to both parents. It's written by a man. It's written to both parents. But I believe that we're going to find that it is a great extension of our last course on womanhood. So we're going to start with some review today. Um, before we get into the crux of chapter one, we want to go back and talk about some review. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah 43? Isaiah 43, verse 6. This was the first verse that we looked up in our last course. If you're here, this is, um, or if you were here, some of this is going to be review. If you weren't here, some of this will help get us all on the same page a little bit. So, okay, Isaiah 43, verse 6 and 7 says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. All right, now the last time, our first point when we were together was we pointed out that God created us. He determines everything about us as women. This semester, we're gonna just tweak that a little bit. And so point number one on our papers is, because God is creator, he defines our motherhood. He defines our motherhood. Now, you know this. God is the creator. Everything we do is going to be rooted in God because he is the one that made us. Okay, that means that he is going to be the one that defines motherhood. He is going to be the one that determines what's important. Okay, this is what it also means. It means that the word of God, your Bible, is going to be sufficient in guiding you in your mothering and in your parenting. The author of the book is gonna be very quick to say that. One of the reasons that we have chosen to do the handbook version of this book is because it's going to get you into the word of God, reading the word of God for yourself about what the Bible has to say about um, these things. So we wanna remember God determines everything because he is the creator and that the word of God is going to be sufficient for our mothering. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute here. Does the Bible tell me how long I should let my baby cry in her crib? <laughs> should I even put her in a crib at night? You know, does the Bible tell me when, how long I should let my child use her pacifier or when to start potty training? I mean, these are things that are overwhelming me right now. Does the Bible address those things? Okay, as far as I know, it doesn't. Okay, not gonna find those things in there. But I would, I would point this out. The Bible teaches us how to pray. 
It teaches us how to cry out to God for help. It teaches us how to ask for wisdom. It teaches you that you are a part of a body, placed in a body, and that God has given older women to younger women to teach them how to love their children. All those things are in the practical sense as well. And so in, in that regard, I believe the Bible is sufficient. Um, David Platt <clears throat> points out something different. He says that the most important thing that your children need is to see a mother that is daily being conformed to the image of Christ. You see, that is important to God. How do I know? How do we know? Because the Bible is completely sufficient to teach you that. Okay? All right. That brings us to our next point. And this is also a review. Number two on your paper. We were created for the glory of God. We were created for the glory of God. We've, this is review. This is why you were born. This is why you exist. The last time we gave a definition for the word glory and for glorifying God or to bring God glory. And we've said it, we put it this way. <clears throat> we said it was putting God on display. We said it was shining the spotlight on God. We said it's making him visible. It's illuminating him. Holly Eliff said this. And I quote, the purpose of our existence is making God more known than he would have been apart from our life. The purpose of our existence is making God more known than he would have been apart from our life. Now, ladies, let me ask you something. Is there any greater place where this needs to occur than in your own home? Is there anyone that you can remotely imagine that you want to know God, that you want to know the beauty of God than your own children. Statistics tell us, and, and uh, we've talked about this before, that 60%, that's two-thirds, Barna tells us this, two-thirds of active churched youth will leave in their teens and 20s, many to never return again. Some researchers put that higher. They put it at 80 and 90% that will be gone by the time they're in their second year of college. Now, let's put a face on that. Let's imagine that each one of you represent one of your children, and you've all grown up in, in church together. You've all been active together. All right, now look at the person on your right and the person on your left, because by the time you're in high school, they won't be there. And if the statistics if the higher statistics are right, by the time you hit college, you're going to be alone at that table. If the United Kingdom is any indication, it is worse. The churches there are being transformed into mosques, into restaurants, into theaters, but the church presence is empty, emptying. Now, I suspect for Americans that part of the reason for the exodus, and I emphasize the word part, it is not the only reason, but it's part of the reason, is that we are not putting God display on display in our homes. We're putting everything else on display. He is sharing the spotlight in our homes. You know what we do? We make him share the spotlight with sports. We make him share the spotlight with school and schoolwork because we want our kids to get into a good college, we want them to get a good job, we want them to make money and have nice things. 
We put the spotlight on, on education, on sports, on possessions, on pleasure, on entertainment, things that were never intended to be in the spotlight. Now, am I saying that you should not concern yourself with school or that your kids can't be involved in any of these things? No, no, not at all. I'm saying they're not spotlight worthy. I'm saying they're not worth centering your life around and losing your children to. Now, before I go any further, I need to address something. I noticed as I was reading this book, it is a book about parenting, and my children are raised. And so I went through this book, and it really just, every chapter became a pronouncement to me of all the things I did wrong or didn't do good enough. And so you read a chapter and you think, oh man, I, I messed that up, or you know, okay, chapter two, well there's something else I got wrong. <laughs> and you know, that explains a lot, you know, just, <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, it wasn't good. And my, and my guess is that if you're here today and your children are raised, or even if you have a few years of parenting under your belt, my guess is you will be tempted to feel the same way, where the words on the page kind of jump out and accuse you of the things that you didn't get right and you can't go back and undo. And if and when that happens, I want you to remember something, and I want you to hear me on this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Therefore now there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Now God may have for you to repent. You may have to go back and make some apologies. You may have to ask for forgiveness from your kids. God may have you make some changes. But there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's what we'll do. We get up and sin no more. Our next point, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. This is like visiting an old friend. You may not even have to turn there. <clears throat> Genesis 1.27 reads, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our next point, it's a long one. Number three on your paper. God intentionally created two distinct genders to image who he is. And as women, we distinctly bear God's image through our femininity. Now, that was a mouthful. We spent eight weeks last time talking about this, okay? We talked about biblical manhood and what it looked like. We talked about biblical womanhood. We said, when it came to our men, that they were wired to be initiators, okay? They were created. They go out and forward. Remember, we said they are the ones that were going to be using the word let's. Let's do this. Let's do that. Okay? They were the ones that were created to um, go out and get jobs and act as providers and be our protectors and be our leaders. That's what, that was true biblical manhood. True biblical womanhood, on the other hand, we were the soft, were the soft receptive ones. 
We're to be the helpers, which we said was not a wimpy word. We are the life givers and the nurturers. We are the more relational gender. We are the ones that are going to be primarily, our sphere of influence is going to be in the home, and we are going to be about nurturing the relationships in the home. That is our primary concern, a primary concern. Okay, now, in light of that, as we're about to start a parenting class, I need to clarify something and uh, remind you that your children are not the center of the universe. Your children are not, you're not to evolve, evolve your life around your children. Now, I know that's kind of confusing because I just got done saying that our primary sphere is within the home. But, but our, our children are not the center of the universe. Now, they are born thinking that they are. <laughs> and chances are, if you're, if you're in the throes of, of raising young children, chances are you are spending every waking moment caring for them and hearing them and talking with them, and your life is immersed in them. And so it's very easy to fall into the mentality that your children are the center of the universe. Often, uh, you hear women say things like this, I love my children. My children are my life. Oh, you know, my children are my life. Okay, dear sister, if you are in Christ, that better not be the case. If you are in Christ, Jesus Christ is your life. And your life is to evolve around Jesus Christ. Now, part of the reason that I bring this up this morning is because we're about to spend 10 weeks talking about parenting, 10 weeks talking about our kids. And, and you know how we women are, we get in the zone. We, get, we just get in that motherhood zone. We're thinking about kids and we're talking about kids and we're reading stuff about kids and we're watching stuff on the computer about kids. We just kind of get immersed in it to the point where we've got dad pushed off here on the side and we don't really show much attention to him unless we need him to do something. Hey, could you help me over here? Okay, now, the uh, author doesn't really talk much about this directly in the book, so this was something that I thought we should settle as we go on. And that is, I want to remind you of the things that we've talked about in the past about marriage and about our husbands, because we want to keep those front and center. Now, what were some of those things? Well, in the past, we have learned that we are to love our husbands. We have learned that we are to serve our husbands. We, are lear we have learned that we are to respect them and to submit to them. We've learned that our marriages are a picture of Christ and the church. We've learned that our marriages are, are helping people to understand, as we, as we relate to our husbands, it is helping the watching world to understand how the Trinity is relating to each other. So as you parent, you don't want to do it as feminists. You want to do it as the bride of Christ. You want to put, remember, we want our children to know God. We want to put God on display. So that means that that relationship with your husband is going to be front and center. You see, that's spotlight worthy. Okay. Some of you may be thinking right now, you don't know my husband. My husband is a difficult man. My husband is not going to agree with any of these things that we're going to be learning about. Or maybe your husband's not around. 
Matt Chandler is famous for saying, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. Where the ideal is lacking, you be the bride of Christ. You be the bride of Christ to your children in your home, and then you just trust grace. Last time, we talked about being created in the image of God and that we were image bearers. And this time, we're going to continue on with that, and I want to show you something new. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Last time when we talked about the image of God, we focused primarily on the gender aspect of that. This time, we want to see something different. Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to start with verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Okay, first verse talking about the heart of man. Second verse talking about the heart of God. One of the ways that we are created and uniquely made in the image of God is that we have a spiritual heart, okay? Now, um, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about the heart because that's what the book in chapter 1 is going to focus on, and that's what we want to talk about this morning with the remainder of our time. So if you would turn with me to Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23, this is one of the key verses in the book. We will refer to this each week. Proverbs 4.23 reads, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. All life flows from the heart. It is the wellspring of life. Now, I want to start by defining what we mean by the word heart. And the culture, when it talks about heart, it's usually thinking about the, the um, seat of your emotions. But when you get into the Bible, it's talking about something much more. There are, there are nearly 800 verses in the Bible about the heart. And so as you read about those verses, then you can come and put together a good definition for what the heart is. I'm going to use one. I have it on your sheet. It is by Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, number four on your sheet. The heart is the central core and drive of my life intellectually. Okay? It involves the mind. Affectionately, it's shaping the soul. And totally, it's providing the energy for living. So, we're, so it's the drive intellectually, affectionately, and totally. Now the author of the book puts it this way. He says the heart is the control center for life. The heart is the control center for life. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you're going to see some other terms there. You're going to see words like spirit, inner man, soul, and, and heart. They'll all be used, okay? But according to Proverbs 4.23, everything we do is flowing from the heart. The heart is setting the course for life. All behavior is coming from the heart. All right. Now, a great exercise, by the way, is, is to get into the Word of God. Get yourself a concordance and look up all the different verses, or start looking them up, that have to do with the heart. 
and you're going to see and, and understand what the heart does. You're going to read verses like the one we just read in Genesis that says the heart had thoughts. You're going to read verses that say that the heart grieves or that it, um, it cherishes or that it fears or um, that it um, is strengthened. In other words, you're going to read that the heart is about thinking, it's about emotion, it's about remembering and, and other cognitive activities. It's the control center for life. All right, now having said that, let's turn to Mark chapter 7. The heart is a major theme in the Gospels. Mark chapter 7, <clears throat> I want to start with verse 14. Mark 7, 14. This is Jesus speaking. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that, go, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, we'll, we'll end there. Um, in this passage, we get to see Jesus explain the passage from Proverbs, where he's telling us that the heart is the control center for life. Okay, and out of it is springing the things that we do that defile us. And our sinful behavior can be traced back to our own hearts. Okay? Now, what about your sweet children? What about your sweet babies? Do they have defiling, sinful behavior coming from their hearts? <clears throat> it may be a while before they display sexual immorality and adultery, but greed, slander, pride, envy, coveting, lying, rebellion, those things are displayed early on, aren't they? Me, my, mine, no, all those some of the first words they learn. <laughs> Hiding something behind their back. Straightening their little bodies so that you can't get a diaper on them. <laughs> that's, that starts young. That starts young. Okay. The heart is determining behavior. Now, here's the problem. The problem is, as parents, we generally focus all our energy and all our thought on the behavior, which is understandable because that's what we see. That's what's alerting us to the problem. But see, if we never, but the, the problem is we're addressing the behavior and not following through and addressing the heart, which we need to be addressing because out of it is flowing the behavior. Okay? So um, it's from the heart that the behavior is overflowing. All right, so turn with me now to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. 
Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, this is going to be a good verse to remember because you're going to want to go back here. You're going to want to land on this. Because you don't want to be just addressing the outside of the cup. You want to be asking yourself, okay, listen, did I just whitewash that? Or did I address the inside of the cup? Did I shepherd the heart? Our goal as parents is to be dealing with the inside of the cup. Our author puts it this way. We want to help our children, we want to help shepherd our children to have a biblical understanding of their behavior. He says we want to help shepherd them to have an understanding of the world that they live in and to understand themselves as creatures being created by God for the glory of God. Now, how do we do that? That's a good question. We are going to spend the next 10 weeks talking about it. But the author gives us some good starting points to kick things off, and he talks about it in the first chapter. He reminds us, and this is our next point, number five, he reminds us that the Bible is sufficient and gives us all the categories of thought that we need to understand and evaluate behavior. As I mentioned, there are 800, nearly 800 references to the heart. And one of the things that the author recommends is starting a, a journal or keeping a little notebook so that as you're reading the scriptures, you can start collecting and noting the different uses that the Bible has for the heart. He says it this way, start collecting the attitudes of the heart that the Bible uses to describe things that motivate behavior. Okay, you're collecting attitudes of the heart that the Bible is using to describe the things that motivate behavior. Okay, in other words, it's like this. If you're going to be equipped, you're going to have to get into the Word of God. You're going to have to get into the Word of God for yourself. And you're going to be paying attention to the way the Bible is describing the heart and how it's connecting it to certain behavior. So that when you see certain behavior, you can go back and address the part of the heart that it's being dealt with. You want to learn what the biblical terminology is for the things that are taking place. Now, that's important for many reasons. But he goes on to explain something. He says that when we assign terms to heart attitudes that are not biblical terms, then we're moving away our thinking from the, biblical, from the Bible as a means of understanding motives and attitudes. And he gives an example. He gives the example of the word frustrated. The word frustrated in the Bible is never assigned to the heart. Plans are frustrated, but the heart is never said to have been frustrated. So so we know that it's something else. It's something other than the heart being frustrated. So let me give you an example. Uh, 
a mom says, oh, you know, little Timmy, he just, he gets so frustrated when I have to put him in the car seat. You know, he kicks, he streams, he just causes all kinds of commotion. He's just so frustrated. I know you're frustrated, honey. It won't be much longer. Okay, listen, frustrated, we know, frustrated, not a biblical term assigned to the heart. Now, there might be some behavior, but we know something else is going on. Is he, I don't know, uh, angry? Is he uh, rebellious? Is he uh, impatient, defiant, any of those? Okay, uh, frustrated sounds nicer. Uh, but you know what? It's not going to get you to the root of the problem so that you can't, take, so that you can't address it properly. Bottom line is, we've got to get into the Word of God. And we want to be looking and thinking at these things uh, according to his word. We wanna, we're going to have to know the word of God if you are going to be able to understand and be able to help your children understand the overflow of their heart. Okay, now, if you would turn with me to Matthew 15, because we want to take a look at some of the problems that come from just dealing with behavior, all right? And not shepherding the heart. Matthew 15 Matthew 15, verse 7. Again, this is Jesus talking. Verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Okay, did you catch that? Did you, did you see what Jesus calls it when you fix up the outside real pretty and you got the lip service, but it doesn't reflect a heart change? on the inside. He calls it hypocrisy. And yet this is so often what we do in child rearing, where we're all concerned about modifying behavior, but we don't ever address the heart that is directing behavior. We say things like this. Okay, give that back to your brother. All right, now tell him you're sorry. Okay, go get, some, go get ready for dinner. We've not addressed, we've not addressed the heart. Okay, number six. The, and this is part of the problem with focusing on behavior. Number six, focusing only on behavior and not the heart produces hypocrisy. Our author put it this way, and I have it on your paper. A change in behavior that does not stem from a change in the heart is not commendable, it's condemnable. Okay? Now, I, I, we do want to need to emphasize Dealing with behavior is important, and we're going to have, you know, we're going to have chapters on that. And one of the things the author points out is sometimes you have to deal with behavior first. You don't have time to, to wait for them to change, have a change in their heart. You know, you got your kid, and he's got his arm back, and he's ready to pound somebody. Okay, you're not going to wait for him to have a change in his heart. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to have to deal with behavior. So, um, so, so, we don't, so we're not dismissing dealing with behavior, not at all. But what we need to understand is if we're concerned only with behavior, if we're concerned only with shining up the outside of the cup and not addressing the heart, then, then we really run the risk of raising uh, nice little scribes and Pharisees. If our, if our concern is only to have kids that sit politely in class and don't embarrass us and get on the honor roll, then, um, th then, then we're going to have problems. Okay, next. Next, uh, next problem with focusing only on behavior. Number seven, whatever is used to motivate the child will ultimately train the heart. 
Now, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to have an entire chapter discussing some of the things that we do to motivate our children. And what we find is that as we're doing them, we are actually addressing the heart. We're just doing it incorrectly because our attempts to modify behavior are ultimately training the heart in that. Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say that you're all about uh, using uh, rewards to train your child. Well, what, do you, what are you doing? You're ultimately training the heart to seek out rewards. Okay, and in most cases, we end up training the heart to have idols. And that's our next point. And all that's going to make a lot more sense in the weeks to come. Number eight, focusing only on behavior trains the heart to have idols. Now, um, uh, lastly, the next thing that we want to discuss, we want to close by discussing some of the benefits of shepherding a child's heart in addition to dealing with um, behavior. Particularly, these are benefits, particularly when it comes to the correcting and the dis dis disciplining of your children. All right, first of all, benefit number one. Number nine on your paper. Shepherding the heart focuses correction on deeper things than just behavior. Okay, you're not just dealing with the outside of the cup. We're going to get inside. We're going to talk about deeper things. Number 10 brings us to number 10. Shepherding the heart provides an opportunity to confront what is going on in the heart. Right? When you're shepherding the heart, that's going to allow you the chance to unmask the underlying sin. And you're going to get a chance to talk about sin and your child's sinful behavior. You're going to get a chance to, to talk about how his straying behavior is connected to a heart that is straying from God. Okay? And which leads to the third benefit. And that is number 11. Shepherding the heart leads to the cross. Now, you could also put in that blank, it leads to the cross, it leads to the gospel, it leads to the need for a savior. All right? Any of those will work. If you are just dealing with behavior, if you are just dealing with cleaning upside, cleaning the outside of the cup, then see, you are never, that is never going to lead to conversations about the gospel. That's never going to lead to conversations about grace because you don't need it. See, you don't need grace to clean the outside of the cup. But boy, you start talking about the inside of the cup. You start talking about the heart and we are desperate. We are desperate for grace. You see, when you're dealing with the inside of the heart, you need grace. You need grace for salvation. You need grace for the sanctification and living every day. You need grace. You need to be having grace and gospel conversations. And you know what? The gospel is the glory of God. Come back full circle. You're having gospel conversations in your home. You're putting the glory of God on display. That brings us to our final point. And we ended with this numerous times in our last course when we said that our womanhood cannot make sense apart from the gospel. And we're going to see the exact same thing with your parenting. And so our final point is our parenting will make no sense apart from the gospel. Would you pray with me?
Father, we praise you. Thank you for grace. How could we parent a single day apart from your goodness and your kindness and your grace? And my prayer would be that we would just start to be women that start thinking of the greater picture, the the big picture of the glory of God and giving our children a taste of that and not get so hung up only on behavior, but to be able to take them back, to think about the heart, help them to go and pursue in your word what you have to say about the heart. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, in the Savior of our souls. Amen.